This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. A new study out from a regular source here at Drilled, Dr. Robert Brule with the Institute for Environment and Society at Brown University, reveals just how big a role the PR industry has played in obstructing climate action. From spreading denial and disinformation to manipulating the masses to building political will for or against certain policies, the PR industry has been enabling the fossil fuel industry's every move for more than a hundred years. Today, Dr. Brule joins me to talk about that research and the firm that's worked the longest and hardest for Big Fossil, Edelman. Also joining us is former Edelman VP, Christine Arena, founder of Generous Films. If you're unfamiliar with Edelman, go back to our Mad Men season, season three, and listen to episode three, all about the legendary Daniel Edelman, whose son Richard has followed in his footsteps. In the biography the firm commissioned on Daniel Edelman, they brag about how he put a human face on big oil for the American Petroleum Institute. Today, we'll talk about PR's role in architecting climate obstruction, why PR firms have avoided accountability for so long, and what it might look like for them to face the music. That's coming up after this quick break. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. This episode is supported by Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers, an original podcast from the Environmental Defense Fund. People ask me all the time what they can do about climate change, and I feel a little bit like a climate change guidance counselor sometimes. (laughs) The short answer is, what are you good at? What are you interested in? Where can you plug in? What I like about Degrees is that it helps people figure out how they could maybe use their job to make an impact. Degrees features candid conversations and takeaways from today's most inspiring climate change makers. Each episode tells the story of how one inspiring change maker found their climate career and how you can too. There's a new season out now, season three, and it's all about how no matter the industry, you can find a planet-saving job. I got a sneak preview of season three of Degrees, 
and I loved it, especially the episode about Lake Street Drive, which is a green band, which is actually a lot harder to pull off than you might think, just in terms of all of the disposable things that come along with touring and concerts and music venues, trying to convince venues to reduce their waste, all of that stuff. Travel, how do you figure that out? It was really good. And there's lots more where that came from too. These narrative stories will capture your attention and inspire you while giving you practical tips on how to get a climate-focused career. Search for Degrees, Real Talk About Planet-Saving Careers anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll include a link in the show notes too. Big thanks to Degrees for their support. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to (laughs) happen. But one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earthbreeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. Earthbreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, Earthbreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes, so it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 for zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, so Dr. Brule, maybe you could start by explaining what prompted this study in the first place. You know, what what information were you looking for? For a long time, I've studied the environmental movement and the climate movement. And around 2012, I started to focus on what I call the climate counter movement, which is the organized effort to stop climate action in the United States. And so I started looking at conservative think tanks and who funds them and what their role was in the climate obstruction process. And as I'm going through that data, I start, you know, I'm looking at dollar figures of, you know, total budget of $2 million here or $3 million here for organizations like the Heartland or the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I decided to branch out into looking at trade associations like the American Petroleum Institute. So I started to get the IRS data on the American Petroleum Institute. And suddenly I'm looking at a budget of $225 million as opposed to $3 million for the Heartland Institute. And so I'm going, my goodness, you know, this is at least 100 times larger as far as the amount of money going into their political activities. And then I started to look at, well, where's that money going? And I came across a contract from the American Petroleum Institute to Edelman Communications in 2010 for about $75 million to one organization from one other organization. And that really piqued my interest because even if I add up all of the money going into the climate science denial efforts. I recently published a paper on that, and it amounts to about $36 million annually. And I'm looking at a contract in one year of $75 million for one organization in PR. And I said, how much of this is going on? You know, do we have any good studies of this? And it turns out that the answer is, No, we're not looking. Nobody had done any peer-reviewed research into the extent of the role of advertising companies in the climate change arena. I mean, there were an isolated study here about this particular campaign or this particular campaign, but it didn't give you an overall comparative idea of how much activity there was. So I, I decided, let's go look at that. I'm just wondering how much of this is there? And so I set out to do a really, really basic discovery study where all I wanted to know is, well, how much is there and what do they do? What is this? And so we compiled a list of about two, I think it was 214 organizations that are prominent players in climate politics. And it's all of the usual actors, API, Sierra Club, NRDC, ExxonMobil, Chevron, etc. So we have a list of 214 organizations. And then I looked up, it turns out that there's a corporate directory that's put out annually by O'Dwyers that basically PR firms send in who they work for, you know, list who they work for. So we collected them all, that took a while. And then we just go in and we do a match. Who worked for ExxonMobil? We list it. Who worked for Sierra Club? We list it. Who worked for Chevron? We listed, and we just compiled that data, very simple, and that forms the backbone of the paper. It's just a very descriptive paper. We make no 
claims about the content of their advertising campaigns. We just sort of say, this is the frequency of employment that we see from this data. Then we said, well, what do these PR firms do for these organizations? So we did a LexisNexis search of all of the media coverage from 1989 to the year 2000 that involved one of our 214 organizations and tried to find all the media coverage that had to do with advertising by these companies. And we compiled that and we wrote a 40-page supplemental material to the report. So we focused on the 10 largest PR companies that are engaged in this area based on our data. And then we found another 10 that had gotten an extreme amount of coverage because of their activities were seen as controversial or obviously newsworthy. And what we found is that regardless of whether they're working for the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or ExxonMobil or the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers, the strategies and tactics of PR are pretty much similar across the board. There's a well-defined discipline of public relations activities that is carried out on behalf of both sides. And what this tells me in the end is that, one, basically everybody uses public relations as part of their effort to either support or to obstruct action on climate change. Two, they use pretty similar tactics. And so basically, this is a ubiquitous and underexamined area of the effort to obstruct climate action. The other thing we found is that it's not about denying climate science. The, the climate science denial, it's, it's less expensive to do than to try to change public opinion or to shift the cultural discourse, which is what a lot of these PR campaigns do. So it might only cost 30 or $40 million to try to cast doubt on climate science. But if you want to move all the public opinion of people in the United States, or you want to shift congressional discourse about it or media discourse on it, that's a much bigger proposition. And I've seen figures that range, you know, depending on the year, of course, but between $500 million and $700 million a year is spent on these PR activities to obstruct climate action. And if you only look at climate science denial, you're missing this other amount of money that's probably 10 or 20 times larger than the climate science denial effort. So I think, you know, for me, what I'm hoping that this study does is that it puts the role of the public relations organizations on the map, because it's pretty clear to me that they are integral to the efforts to obstruct climate action and that they are independent actors. You know, in other words, they bid on these contracts and get them, but they choose to bid on what contracts they, they want to take and which ones they don't want to take. And so they're voluntarily signing on to assist in these efforts, whether it's helping to forward climate action, public relations, or to obstruct climate action, which is what the vast majority of these organizations are engaged in. So with that, I think hopefully this puts the role of public relations firms on par with ExxonMobil or 
API or Environmental Defense Fund is that these organizations are significant actors. They're the people that ExxonMobil or API go to to say, we need this done for us. And they're the people that carry it out and execute it. And so they are part of the effort to either forward climate action or obstruct climate action. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see how they're held accountable for their activities in the future. That's great. Okay, so I want to bring in Christine Arena. She is the head of Generous Films, and she is also a former VP at Edelman. I'd love to hear just your kind of initial response when you first saw the information in this study. What did you think? Well, just to drill down on what Dr. Brill is saying, it was eye-opening to see this is really the most comprehensive look to date on how PR firms and ad firms really are a major force in obstructing climate action. And also to Dr. Bull's point, PR and ad firms are central players in what we look at as the influence industry, right? So ExxonMobil can't do what it's doing without its influence industry partners. Those partners include law firms. Those partners include lobbying organizations, right-wing think tanks. And PR and ad firms are part of that influence industry and they're central players. And so what Dr. Brule is describing is incredibly important because when you look at the resources channeled through these influence industry partners, PR and ad firms are taking a big chunk of the money. A lot of emphasis is on external facing, advertising, marketing, and promotion that helps prop up ExxonMobil or the fossil fuel industry's social license to operate. And the point of doing that is to give the world a sense that we got it to quote API, we're on it. We don't need regulation. You know, we're good corporate actors. And so this is really, I think, just such a valuable study. And to me also, the major contribution is that it really helps illustrate why we are where we are on climate policy today. So to this point that Dr. Bull's making, instead of the focus on outright climate denial or questioning the science, I think our focus, everyone's focus, the public's focus needs to shift to climate obstruction, what that is, what it looks like, and corporate propaganda as well. That's where the game is now. And to me, that's what's so valuable about the study. It points this out and it really shows who the major actors are and the kinds of activities they're engaged in on behalf of their clients. The three questions the paper answers, which I think are so interesting, are, you know, which are the firms that are the most utilized by the industry? Who has the deepest relationships? And then what's the extent of their involvement in climate politics? And what activities do they undertake to advance fossil fuel interests? And I think what is really interesting with respect to the first point about the PR firms that are most utilized is that we see that the current debate around whether or not fossil fuel clients deserve representation is really a flawed debate. It's not a debate, in fact. We're not going, oh, should PR and ad firms represent these clients? Should they not? This is not an ideological debate. The real issues are, how are they currently represented? How are fossil fuel clients currently represented by PR and ad firms? And to what end? Like, what is what is the result of that? And so I think as this research shows, there are some 
PR firms and ad firms that, that have relationships, you know, with some fossil fuel clients. But then we see that there are other firms with deep, deep relationships across these sectors, oil, gas, coal, rail, utility, and these spheres. You know, you got your corporate clients like Exxon's and Chevron's and then trade associations. And there's such a difference. You know, you got your American Petroleum Institutes, but also some of the more obstructing organizations like American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers and others that are considered more extreme. And so that's actually interesting because some of those bigger relationships, and then if you look at the resources spent with those trade associations, if you're a business leader and you're representing those clients, you cannot plausibly and credibly argue that your decision to represent them is neutral. That's not a neutral decision because the entire purpose of some of these super obstructing trade associations is to do just that. They exist in order to obstruct climate action. That's their role. That's their purpose. That's the value proposition. So you are not advancing any goal other than climate obstruction by representing these clients. You are not helping to bring the energy transition into being. So any spin on that, I think, is really squelched, especially as Dr. Brule has sort of unveiled the spending and the big, big contracts. So I think that's very interesting finding there. And it kind of puts, I think, a lid on the party line from the industry, which is that, look, we represent all clients, we're unbiased, we help everyone. That's not really true. Representation is not neutral. And certainly the outcome of representation is non-neutral. And then the other aspect of the study that I find so interesting is just this drill down on disinformation. The fact that the vast majority of ads and marketing messages evaluated across a sample set of 179 clients contain factual distortions, omissions, and greenwashing. That should be an alarm bell for the entire industry because not only are these messages misleading, but they're uniquely harmful to people. And I think that is really something that we're going to see play out over the next year as we see how these AG lawsuits do. You know, we got Mara Healy, Attorney General of Massachusetts. She successfully prosecuted Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. But in the process of doing that, she also named McKinsey their marketing partner. And, you know, they settled for $600 million there. So there is definitely a precedent that shows that professional services firms are not immune, that client privilege is not a panacea. And that is really just the point I think that activists should deal down on. And I think it's something that I want employees inside these agencies to be really aware of, that disinformation, the fact that most of the messaging coming out of the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry now contains these distortions, omissions, and greenwashing. And those distortions, omissions are harmful, potentially harmful to people. That is just such an important point. So speaking of people inside of these agencies, I want to hear a little bit about both the media coverage of the study, Dr. Brule, who you've been talking to and who's covered it and who hasn't, and then also what you guys have both been seeing from, from Edelman, which, you know, kind of looms large in this report. So maybe, Dr. Brule, if you want to speak first to, you know, what the media response has been. We've had, I think, about 10 or 12 stories coming out. The Washington Post got it in their newsletter 
what's what's been interesting for me is what's missing is that the Wall Street Journal didn't cover it. The New York Times has yet to cover it. So that for me, I guess, is one area. But I, I mean, as far as the coverage itself, I find it incredibly amusing that every one of the media outlets that I talked to also tried to contact Edelman Communications, and the answer was no comment, no comment, no comment, no comment, no comment, and no comment. I mean, this is not a controversial topic, as far as I can see, is that this is just a straight descriptive analysis. I mean, to follow on, though, a little bit with Christine, is that I think what we really need to recognize is that it's not just about disinformation. It's about manipulation of consciousness. Is that what these PR firms do? And they spend, I mean, I did a paper on this up to like $1.5 billion from, I think, like 1989 to 2015, I think. $1.3 billion, $1.5 billion. We know that the public relations industry itself has bragged about their the result of their activities uh, regarding the effectiveness of what they do. Some new information I have on this is that documents from the Global Climate Coalition and their efforts uh, and their PR efforts by Ebru Saracen claimed that, and this is a quote, GCC has successfully turned the tide on press coverage of global climate change science, effectively countering the eco-catastrophe message and asserted the lack of scientific consensus on global climate. And then again, they claim GCC's effort to raise awareness of the science and economics of climate change influenced the administration's decision to re rely on voluntary rather than mandatory measures to reduce climate change, greenhouse gas emissions in its climate change action policy. In other words, they're claiming that they're able to manipulate the consciousness of the American public, that they're able to manipulate and shift the, the media coverage of it, and that they're able to manipulate the public opinion so that climate change is not seen to be problematic and that climate science is inaccurate, and that they're able to manipulate and change public policy because of these PR activities. Christine, what have you been seeing from the agency itself? And what, you know, in terms of this sort of no comment, no comment, no comment, how, how much did you sort of expect that to be the reaction? And what do you expect to see going forward? I absolutely expected the containment strategy that we've seen for the past, you know, five, six years on these stories continue. A containment strategy is simply when you put up barriers to discussion because you don't want to address the material issues. You're going to try to undermine your critics. You're going to try to say, you know, this journalist from the New York Times that wrote the story about FTI, she's biased against the fossil fuel industry. You're going to try to downplay this peer-reviewed research as activists, you know, you're going to not comment. You're going to instruct your employees not to comment. You're going to issue canned statements that don't really address the material issues. You're going to pledge to not represent climate deniers when clearly no one is denying climate change anymore. The game has moved. So that is expected. It's what they've been doing for years. And it's not surprising. It is infuriating, but it's not surprising. I'm a little more bullish than Dr. Brule on the long-term 
implications here because my attitude is they can issue as many no comments as they like. They can post as many canned environmental statements on their websites as they like. But I think that these old school containment strategies are just not going to succeed against the weight of this particular story and in today's climate because you know, let's not forget, we really are in an era of accountability and accountability journalism. I mean, we got whistleblowers on the cover of Time magazine. So disinformation is a huge issue nationally. And when we drill down to climate disinformation, this is about a lot more than agencies are presently acknowledging. Because now, not only do we have this body of peer-reviewed evidence, but there's the seven state AG lawsuits filed on the basis of deceptive marketing practices. There's a congressional investigation into big oil disinformation, subpoenas issued there. And so I do think that journalists, including inside the trades, are going to start to ask tougher questions rather than towing the agency party line. So offending firms are really starting to receive pressure from all sides. They might not yet acknowledge this publicly, but that's what's really going on. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you guys both think about the fact that Edelman has announced that they are going to review their client roster? What does that mean when a firm reviews their client roster? What do you think? They did that, you know, after they got kind of beat up by clean creatives to say, oh, well, we're going to look and maybe we're not going to keep working for fossil fuel companies. And maybe they maybe they will probably, you know, they're going to throw somebody under the bus to do this. But, you know, guess what? You've been doing this for 20 years. You've got a history here. You've got an accountability here. Part of your effort has contributed to the obstruction of climate action and the, you know, promulgation of false advertising and disingenuous activities that, you know, you can't say, oh, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to continue to do these evil things. Yeah, okay, but that's not an excuse to an accountability for their past actions. I think they're going to try to not talk about their past activities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The story is just getting started. This is not just a bunch of activists. This is not a short-term media cycle. This is a long game and it's going to escalate over the next 12 months, particularly as we go into round two of the House investigation. But, you know, this whole thing about the 60-day review, look, that is just a delay tactic so that they don't really have to say anything publicly and materially until next year. They can wait to see if other agencies respond. They're buying a little time. We're going to review our client roster. Well, that gives them the opportunity then to come up with basically standards that could be interpreted a number of different ways. For example, back in 2015, of course, they came forward and said, we will no longer work on behalf of climate deniers. But because the disinformation game doesn't really center on scientific climate denial anymore, it's moved and advanced to different messaging and to more greenwashing and corporate propaganda. So technically, they can work with anyone. <laughs> so these standards are a bit subjective. They can be interpreted a number of different ways. And I believe that's by design that gives them the opportunity to kind of justify and say, well, we think Exxon is being misrepresented and they're taking the lead in carbon emissions activities without acknowledging the fact that a 100% of those activities are on the supply side of Exxon's business. They're not talking about reducing oil and gas output. They're not talking about their core products when they say we're in line with the Paris Agreement. They're talking about bringing fossil fuels to market more efficiently. But because we have no laws in the United States that require fine print on advertising, Edelman can say, well, they're doing a lot for climate. And 
the ads themselves pass weak fact-checking criteria. So really, the whole emphasis, I think, needs to be much more pointed on the nature of the messaging that they're producing. Really, we need higher standards and we need for those standards to be enforced. And we need leadership within the space. There have been no agency CEOs who have come forward to say, you know what, we agree. Climate disinformation is out of control, just like COVID disinformation. This is a crisis. Greenwashing is out of control as well. This is a crisis. We acknowledge a crisis and we're going to do something about it. Nowhere in Edelman's statement or in any other agency statement do they even acknowledge that a crisis exists. And that to me is incriminating. And that is the biggest hot button issue, in my view, that we can look at. And then the other aspect I would say is that this whole crisis is also revealing a cultural rift inside agencies. You know, agencies are in a tough spot right now in the sense that the innovation in the marketing communications realm is really happening, not in the big old school agencies, it's happening outside in independence and startups. And so we have this new generation of young creative talent, whether they're into creator communities or NFTs or, you know, specialized formats like film, really gravitating towards these indies and startups. And so it is harder for big agencies like Wagner, Ekstrom and Edelman to retain top creative talent. So they, and then if you layer on top of that, the ethos of this new generation of creative workers, climate is critical to them. It's a paramount concern. So when you have these old guard management attempts to deflect from the deeper issues, to put forth, you know, subjective standards that could be interpreted a number of different ways, that double talk, those containment strategies, those strategies are just not going to work. They're going to just erode trust more, cause more leaks, and then really guarantee that the truth comes out some other way, which then lengthens the media cycle. So it's really funny. I was thinking, you know, yesterday, if the PR and ad agency world were my client at this point, I would be imploring them to come forward to address the nature of the problem. At the very least, address that this material problem exists. If you don't do that and you try to sidestep this, you're going to lose the trust not only of the media, the media cycle, of the public, but your own employees as well. I think this could be really much more damaging for them than they're willing to acknowledge. it for this time. Quick shout out to some of our latest Patreon supporters, Patrick Santucci, Nick Freeman, Ruth Schaefer, Akshat, Thea Youngs, Tana Morgan, Katie, David Weisskopf, and Will Gollahue. Thank you so much for the support. It means a lot and it really does pay for a lot of things over here, including a new reporter in Australia. Her name is Lyndall Rollins. You might have heard her a couple episodes ago talking about the gas-fired recovery in Australia. You'll be hearing more from her in coming episodes. We also have two more parts of season six, our gas season coming up in the next few months. Our producer, Juliana Bradley, is helping to put those together and doing a ton of reporting as well. Again, reporting that our Patreon supporters have helped to support. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. If you would like to support our work, 
you can do that at patreon.com slash drilled. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, additional research and reporting, and the occasional sneak peek of other shows we're working on. Another way you can support us is by dropping us a reading or review wherever you're listening to your podcasts. That helps other people find us. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.